Welcome to Fresh Cuts, the meaty offshoot of Funhouse. Funhouse is a quarterly magazine of writings, comics and illustrations. A place for those who feel like outsiders, who feel their work is too strange for other places. Each month we meet depraved individuals. Some will feature in the magazine, some we may have picked up off the street, but we guarantee all of them will be fascinating. Today, Richard Barnett. There's very little Richard hasn't done. He's a writer, teacher and broadcaster who specialises in the history of medicine. You might find him in a lecture hall or investigating a London sewer. London, if it had a body today, it's the, it's the body of maybe, I don't know, I want to say an estate agent who spends too much time at the gym or something <laughs> like that. It, it, it's certainly perhaps healthier, cleaner, more impressive, but I don't think more lovable. And now for the important bit. I'm Rachel. I'm Rosie. And, and this, this is Fresh Cuts. How did you become interested in the cultural history of medicine? Well, it was through wanting to be a doctor in the first place. My, my first sort of thoughts about this came at a very, very young age. Um, I, I'm told that I have a family connection to quite a famous uh, forensic pathologist who was working in London in the 1950s and 1960s. In fact, if you go to the uh, Crime Museum Uncovered Exhibition at the Museum of London, you'll be able to see some of his cases on display. Uh, his name is Keith Simpson, and he dealt with a lot of people like Acid Bath Haig. John George Haig used to dissolve old ladies in nitric acid, some of the murders by the Cray twins and so on. And he wrote a book, um, an autobiography called 40 Years of Murder. And I read this when I was maybe seven or eight or nine, something like that. And of course, you know, a small boy reading that, what else would you possibly want to do? It's like Sherlock Holmes, only more so. So I, I decided this was what I was going to do. And I went through school, found out one had to go to medical school to become a pathologist, got to medical school and really sort of had a bit of a, um, I suppose in retrospect, almost a little bit of a breakdown. I'd, there's, a, there's an old saying about medical schools that they, they select well-rounded people and then squash them flat. And I could really see that happening, not only to myself, but to a lot of my friends as well. The dedication you need, the sheer quantity of fact you need to learn, the fact that any kind of interpretation or any ability to link this stuff to what's going on in the wider culture is just kind of squashed out of you. So I did a couple of years of medical school and I was lucky enough after that to get some money from the Wellcome Trust to go and do a, a, an intercalated degree in the history of medicine. And it really was one of those moments where the light bulb came on over my head. All of the questions I had about the body, and culture and society and death and suffering and all of the things that medicine is really about, I found you could get to much more effectively, I think, through through the cultural history of medicine. What did getting sort of that welcome engagement fellowship really mean <laughs> for your career as a whole? I mean, has it been very important to you? Yeah, it, well, I suppose in practical times, it meant I didn't have to work for two years, which was very <laughs> much appreciated. More than that, seriously. It, I, I've, I've jumped track a couple of times in my career. I've, I've, I've gone from being a doctor to being a historian, and now I've gone from being a historian to being a, a sort of freelance writer and broadcaster. And I think the Engagement Fellowship was, I don't want to say validation, but, but a sen it, it gave me the sense that one could do that, that one could not only make a living, but also make a worthwhile career communicating to the public, speaking to the public. I think we, we, we live in a, a, a great age, certainly, of science communication. I think this has almost become the, the, the dominant kind of, of engagement work. And I, I'd very much like for this to be a great age of history communication as well. I think you know one only has to look at BBC iPlayer to see that there's a tremendous public appetite for history. As I said, in some ways in this country, I do feel we're sort of hidebound by that. So if I, if I can spend my life 
getting the British to think and feel in new ways about history, I will be I will be very happy. And you've mentioned the books, of course. You brought some some of the books <laughs> with you. What have we got here? Richard? We've got um, we've got my very latest book, which isn't officially out until the end of the month, but for some reason has already appeared in bookshops. It's called Crucial Interventions, an illustrated treatise on the principles and practice of nineteenth century surgery and I'm just going to pass it over to you. Fantastic. And this of course has got lots of images in it. And are there any partic- in particular that you would like to talk us through or would like to sort of explain for people listening because obviously radio is difficult <laughs> when it comes to images but these are they're fascinating. They're quite graphic of course. They're, of they're, they're, they're just about images. as graphic as graphics get absolutely. The, perhaps a, a little background on the book first of all. These, these um, Crucial Interventions and, and, and its predecessor The Sick Rose is part of a series of books which is a collaboration between the Wellcome Library and Thames and Hudson, the, the art publishers. The idea is that the Wellcome Library has this, I think, unparalleled collection of images relating to the history of medicine. But not only medicine narrowly conceived, medicine in the sense of life and death and health and disease in the body. Now, the Wellcome has been digitising these images over about a decade now, and a couple of years ago they released a, a, a large proportion of them online under a Creative Commons licence. So the idea of this series of books is to draw out this collection, show the public what's available, and also show the kinds of the various rich stories that can be drawn out. My my function is essentially to be the be the guide to these images, to show the ways in which we don't just have to see them as gory or kitsch or as pieces of art. There is a historical and I think maybe even a kind of ethical story to be told about these images. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at some now of um of a knife going straight through an arm. It's splicing straight through it and you can see everything on the inside. It's sort mm. of, I mean, I'm not mm. a particularly squeamish person, so this doesn't this doesn't bother me. But, you know, how do you, do you get over that with some people? You know, obviously you're, a big part of your work is speaking to lots of people about what you do. You get some people sometimes that respond and say, ooh. <laughs> That's it, yes. The, 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 the ooh response is quite a common one. I, I haven't yet had anybody faint, but I'm sure it's only a matter of time. As I say, I, I think it's really a question of how you present it. I think one could use these images in a very, very, um, I'll just be snobbish and say cheap kind of way, that I think there's the possibility here that these could just be used for shock. Um, They are very, very graphic images of people suffering, people dying, bits of bodies, surgical procedures that normally one would never see unless one went inside an operating theatre. But I think the value of taking a historical perspective is that you can start to think a little more broadly about these. There's a story that these images tell about the transformation of surgery. The fact that in the 19th century, surgery went from something that was brutal and quick and extremely painful and essentially carried out in public, in in large um, public um, operating theatres, to something that sees itself as a science, something that can take hours, something that crucially is pain-free and consciousness-free with the invention of anaesthesia, and something that isn't any longer a treatment of last resort. In 1820, surgery was really what you would do if the alternative was death. By the end of the the 19th century, it becomes something that's much more of a a medical choice, a, a choice of treatment. So I think there's that aspect as well. I'm very interested by the people represented in these images, not so much the surgeons, but very often in these pictures you will have a disembodied arm or a disembodied shoulder. Now, that must have been a specimen of somebody. Where did they come from? Were they body snatched? I mean, body snatching was largely going out by the time these images were made. But who were they? Were they paupers in London's great charitable hospitals? How were the images made? Can you imagine the conversation between an artist sitting down with somebody suffering from a terrible disease and saying, well, I'm just going to sit for an hour and I'm going to draw you? 
was consent involved? I mean, a, a big question about any modern medical image is consent and being able to identify the patient. And I think there are questions of how we now look at these images. You know, uh, Susan Sontag wrote um, beautifully and very movingly about looking at images of atrocity. And I don't think these quite fit into that category, but there's certainly a question of regarding the pain of others here. I mean, there's, there's this ancient connection between art and anatomy. I mean, you go back to the, the Renaissance masters, they all dissected, you know, Leonardo and Michelangelo and so on. And if you look at, um, let's take the Royal Academy in the 18th century, when these images were being made, the, the Royal Academy had a professor of anatomy. William Hunter was one of the first professors of anatomy to the, to the, to the Royal Academy. It had a room of um, casts of the human body and écorchés, so, you know, human bodies um, flayed of their skin so that you could see the muscular structure underneath. So I think there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a shared set of concerns that artists and anatomists have. They're both really concerned with how does the human body work? How does it move? How do you represent that realistically? So yeah, I think there's a really, really close connection. And there's a great deal of crossover as well. We know throughout the 18th and the 19th century, we know of anatomists who turn into artists and artists who turn into anatomists. But your point about the character of these images, I think is very, very well taken. There's a lot more in these pictures than there needs to be. There are details of hairstyles, for example, or beautiful lace collars and that sort of thing. And it's very hard to explain. You know, they're not going to improve anybody's surgery if you, if, you, if you know about the hairstyle of your patient, you know. I think what's going on, I think the best way to think about this is as a, a kind of change in visual epistemology. I think our, our way of getting knowledge from images is very much post-photographic. We like the idea of a single image capturing a single kind of truth. These images, I think, are rather different. I think they would have been made by artists who'd seen a number of different bodies and were sort of generalising, kind of trying to create a sort of platonic mm. image of a dislocated shoulder or a particular kind of tumour or whatever it may be. And I think those details were firstly intended to show off their skill, but secondly intended to bring a certain personality. I think another really important thing to bear in mind about these images is that they're the product of several pairs of eyes and hands as well. They would not, as it were, have simply been made by one person. Yeah. Very often you'd have had you'd have had the the surgeon who decided he was going to make a book and was going to put his name to it. He might then have a junior dissector who would prepare the the particular prosection that was going to be drawn. Somebody would then sketch it. Somebody else might then adjust the sketch the sketch so that it was anatomically correct or more aesthetically pleasing or whatever it might be. A third person would engrave it, a fourth person would print it, a fifth person might colour it. You'd have somebody else, maybe the original surgeon, composing the text that was going to go underneath it. Then, of course, you'd have the publisher. And then beyond that, been the thing that every writer dreads is the audience. So you have these images kind of going out into the wild and being interpreted in various ways. So again, it, it's, it's a very different style of objectivity. You know, we, we're, we're now used to this photographic model of objectivity where the snap of a camera captures, captures is an interesting word here, but of course captures a, an image of truth. Whereas this is a kind of epistemology that's all about um, passing on knowledge through different pairs of eyes and different pairs of hands. And it can be quite difficult, I think, for surgeons to keep hold of that truth. When they write about making these images, they, they often write about their anxiety. How do we control what the engraver sees? How do we control the right colours are used to illustrate veins and nerves and whatever else it might be? So to summarise all of this... I think they are beautiful images. I think, as you say, they are evidently crafted images in ways that we don't want now. And, and they, I wouldn't want to say they're less objective. They're just a different kind of objectivity. 
we should get on to your poetry though Richard because of course that's what appears in the Funhouse magazine and to sort of start off really how, how you came to poetry through all your other work how <laughs> that sort of arrived for you I, I wanted to be a poet really before I was anything else before I even wanted to be a forensic pathologist I remember my father coming home I would have been six or seven I suppose and he came home one night with a huge uh, sort of cheap anthology called The Book of a Thousand Poems and I can still see it it had this very sort of um, shiny white cover with a rainbow on it and I just I think I just absolutely devoured it as far as the themes go um, I mean I I try very overtly not to write about what I write about in my academic work I like I like the idea of poetry as a refuge but there certainly are themes that come up I think any historian has to be interested in memory I mean so much of history is what we remember and how we remember and we've already talked about how those memories can change how memories are changed by the act of recollect how memories are changed by the act of recalling I've always found a very good metaphor for this is ghosts and haunting and I know contemporary literature is full of ghosts so I claim no originality on this point but that sense in which we haunt ourselves there's that Emily Dickinson line which I'm going to mangle that one need not be a chamber to be haunted um, I, I think human beings, by virtue of our consciousness, by virtue of our memories, are all haunted. We're haunted by our, uh, I suppose, the decisions that we've made. We're haunted by people we've we've known, um, by our families, by our history as individual and collective. And I, I think poetry is a very... There's something about the music and the rhythm of it that that sort of lifts that. I think this 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 talk of memory and haunting can be very melancholy and very sort of um, leaden if you're not careful. And I th- but I think it, that sense of melancholy combined with the rhythm and music of poetry can produce something that is exquisite. And though I don't like talking about Englishness, it does seem quite English, that kind of slightly melancholy, misty English way of thinking about oneself and, 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 and one's history. And obviously Sea Houses is your first collection and, and, and three of those poems have appeared, as I said, in the in the magazine. What was it you wanted to achieve from from that particular collection? <laughs> what was it you wanted from that? Putting that together? That's a really interesting way to put it. I, I, I never thought of it in those terms. Um, I mean, it, it's what Sea Houses was, was a heap of poetry that accumulated on my desk over about 15 <laughs> years of writing. And I was I was lucky enough to find Jamie McGarry, who runs Valley Press, who 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 was prepared to publish it and and, and did a beautiful job with it. Okay, I I suppose what I wanted to do was I I have a really ambivalent relationship with with history. I mean, it's obviously my profession, and in some ways I love it, but I also think England especially can be so paralysed by its history, that weight of history in this country. And the way that it informs our politics and our culture and our attitudes to so many different things, I just feel it, 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 it's almost suffocating sometimes. So what I, if I was trying to do anything in Sea Houses, and especially in the, the title sequence, I was, I was trying to sort of perform a bit of an exorcism on that. I was trying to sort of, at least for me personally, deal with that weight and put some of it aside so that one could perhaps, I, I hope in future poems, I'm, go, I'm going to be sort of looking to the, the, the future a little more. You mentioned getting people to think differently about history and one of the ways you do this is through your guided tours of London. Tell us a bit more about them. I, I was lucky enough, Peter Ackroyd reviewed my first book, Medical London, and he, 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 he described my co-author and I as two white-aproned anatomists leaning over the corpse of the city, which was rather <laughs> joyous. Um, yeah, I, again, this 
I've, I've, I've in my career got uh, over the last few years very, very interested in engagement. Um, initially, I have to say this was for entirely selfish purposes. I just really like getting up in front of people and performing and sort of leading them on 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 um, on, on stories. But I think, especially with a city like London, where you have so much history here, going back really you know, two thousand years, if not a, a little longer, on this site. And so many of the questions that humanity has faced about living together in cities, about how do you solve problems like sanitation, how do you regulate sexuality, how do we all live together happily, how do you govern cities, how do you balance individual freedom and and collective responsibility, so many of those questions were answered here in London for the first time. And you have so many great set-piece scenes. I suppose the Great Plague of London, 1665, is a really, really good one. Another famous one is cholera in Soho in the 19th century. I'm, I'm off at the end of this week to record a documentary for PBS in the United States about that, about sort of chasing cholera through the, through the streets of Soho. So it gets down for me to a question. It's partly a question about narrative. It's partly a question about the residents of a city connecting with the history of that city. I, most of the people who come on my walks are, are Londoners. And I just, there's, there's, a, there's a joyous sense of them going away with a slightly expanded version of what London is a slightly bigger sense of, well, what has this history been? And also how we can fit into it. You know, I, I think in the hands of people like Boris Johnson, you get the sense that London is simply the story of kings and princes and businessmen and powerful people. But no, of course not. The great story of London are the, the perfectly ordinary folk who've lived and died here. And I think you can get to that story through the history of medicine. So I suppose if I, if I had to put a name to what I'm doing, and it's a rather ugly word, I'd want to talk in terms of somatogeography. As I say, probably never going to catch on. But I think thinking about the city as a body, there's an obvious metaphor here for all cities, London especially, as a body, as a sick body, a body that goes wrong, a body that needs to be managed and treated in various ways. But also thinking about the way in which moving through London and living in London affects one's own body. Um, One wonderful example of this, which I'm very fond of, is the London Sound Survey. Um, This fantastic group of people who go around recording just the perfectly ordinary sounds that you hear in London. It's such a a brilliant and joyous way of kind of reconstructing that collective experience. But just thinking in other ways about how the very, very long established idea and argument, does city life make you sick in some kind of way? Is there something inherent in the kinds of rather fast, agitated, dirty, um, very often promiscuous lives that are led in cities. Is there something about that that makes people sick, that might turn people into degenerates? And of course, those of us who live in London sort of proudly defend our degeneracy and say, no, no, this is the best kind of life one could possibly live. So I'm sorry, that's a very long and windy answer. But no, I'm, I'm very interested in all these different ways of thinking about the body in the city. And the idea that if, if London is a body and if you had to sort of take the temperature of London now, how has the body of London changed? And what sort of body do you think London has now you're asking me to stick a great big rectal thermometer yes, into london yes. float it up the thames as it <laughs> yeah, were <laughs> right yeah the shard just take that the shard you? yes it's a strange time to be a londoner isn't it um I and mean, i've i've been here since 1998 and uh, i suppose we see a number of factors at work here don't we i mean there's there's the 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 the, the bugbear of gentrification which which is transforming the face of the city there's the status of London, or the, the the rather anxious status of London as a great world financial centre, which has certainly transformed the look of, of the city of London since I've been here. We didn't have the gherkin, we didn't have the shard or the walkie-talkie or any of those things. Just walking around London, one of the things I do a great deal, it does seem, at least in the centre, as if it's become a rather less friendly city. 
I don't I don't enjoy walking through the old city in the West End quite so much. Oliver and I were talking on the way here about how the city's been transformed, and we were both saying it's, it's far too sanitary these days. It's been cleaned up, it's been polished, and of course, in some ways, that's a good thing. But in other ways, there's a sense in which a kind of patina of history, perhaps, has been has been steam cleaned from the buildings, just as old St Paul's has been um, steam cleaned. So I think I think London, London, if it had a body today, it's the, it's the body of maybe. I don't know. I want to say an estate agent who spends too much time at the gym or something <laughs> like that. It's it, it it's certainly perhaps healthier, cleaner, more impressive, but I don't think more lovable. And I I say that with 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 sadness in my heart. Richard Barnett's latest book, Crucial Interventions, is published by Thames and Hudson and is out now. If you want to go on your own walking tour with Richard, visit his website richardbarnettwriter.com, which also has a list of all of his published works and upcoming talks. You have been listening to Fresh Cuts with Rosie Cutler and Rachel Humphreys. This podcast is a product of Fresh Cuts, the online platform for Funhouse magazine. You can find other meteor cuts of writings, poetry and illustrations at funhousemagazine.com.